Critical Faith, a podcast about religion and public life sponsored by the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student here at ICS. On Critical Faith, we explore the contours of religion in a plural society. We hear from researchers, activists, educators, students, and more as we try to think through what makes faith such a crucial component of so many of our lives. Along the way, we also try to let ourselves be troubled by some hard questions about our own traditions, our spiritualities, and our communities. In the last episode, I interviewed Neil Deroux, the Canada Research Chair in Phenomenology and Philosophy of Religion, and also the Associate Professor of Philosophy at the King's University in Edmonton, Alberta. We talked about his paper on material spirituality, which was the topic of our first episode, along with a variety of themes related to his work as a Christian philosopher. In this episode, we'll wrap up our series with Neil with some questions from those who were in the audience on the day that we recorded all three of these episodes. Our mics didn't pick up the audience very well that day, so Grace Carhart, another junior member here at ICS, graciously re-recorded the essentials of those questions. Since this is our last week with Neil, I can tell you now to look forward to our next series of episodes with Kate Hennessy, the granddaughter of Dorothy Day, talking about her life, her writing, and her grandmother. If you like what you heard, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. That's a pretty helpful thing for a young podcast like ours just starting out. It helps for people to find us and to keep us on their radar. And you can also find more information about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies at icscanada.edu. I was thinking about your material spirituality along the lines of Charles Taylor. In the medieval world, there was an enchanted sense of reality. People saw immense spiritual power in the woods, in wells, in the Eucharist, things like that. During the Reformation, there was a kind of disenchantment, which is kind of like an accidental consequence of its intention, which was to make people realize that God isn't just localized in the Eucharist, but is an omnipresent force in the material world. While there was religious intention to this move to break down those centers of enchantment, there was overall a disenchanting effect. So my question would be, with respect to the material spirituality you're working out, how does that differ from the unique situation of that original Protestant move away from the enchanted world? No, good. Um, No, that's a really good question. I I think the first way I want to sort of start to try to answer that is, um, and I'm just going to blatantly rip this off from uh, William Kavanaugh. I don't know if you're familiar with his work at all, but if you're interested in this topic, you should read it because he's, he's, he's got a book called Being Consumed where he talks about consumerism and uh, he's really engaging with some of these issues. Um, and I heard him talk once uh, where he was critiquing Charles on uh, Taylor on this point and he was sort of saying the idea that we live in a disenchanted world is just false, right? And I think what the enchantment is is sort of, uh, right? A, there's a certain consumerist enchantment the only thing that explains the fervor about the iPhone 8 is some kind of weird enchantment that isn't right because the iPhone 8 is it's just the iPhone 7 plus $300 right like it's there's there's no, but but right you get these people and they're they're like upset like they 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 almost can't help themselves they need to get the new thing they need to get the new right and he said if you if if you looked at it from any kind of quote unquote rational perspective you would say these people are possessed by something that's making them do these things right and 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 i find this quite compelling actually i think i think 
Charles Taylor's analysis of a disenchanted world is is I mean I get what he's driving at and there's a lot of truth but I, I just think it, I, I'm not I don't I'm not sure I buy it and I think um, I don't know if you're familiar with Brad Gregory's book The Unintended Reformation but it's you should that's another good one too and he's he's a historian he does a really good job of sort of laying out sim, a somewhat similar story to what Charles Taylor does but as an actual historian um, but what he also does is sort of makes the makes the case that sort of I mean similar in the in the sense of like this was unintended as you were talking about right they didn't mean for this to happen but he does an interesting job of, of talking about again i heard him give a talk about this too sort of talking about how into this space opened up by the problems that happened with the religious wars and things like this right into this space the dutch actually introduced mercantilism as the unifying force of their society right and how that sort of leads us to something like a consumerist position that we find ourselves in now right um and I find that interesting and compelling as well. Um, so I think it, that's what I would want to say. I mean, I don't know if that entirely, I mean, it doesn't answer the question of how this is different from, from the medieval perspective, right? And that kind of enchantment. And honestly, I'm not entirely sure, right? Uh, in part because uh, I'm not, I'm not a medievalist, right? Um, I, I worry about, um, I think Bob will agree with me on this. I worry about how our modern readings of the medieval world sort of try to turn it into something where there's like these, backward simpletons who believed in you know like all these crazy things that were out there and that isn't that kind of silly and cute and thank god we moved on from that um i'm leery of that so so i don't want to say I, I i'm not sure that the analysis of the enchanted world in that sense makes sense either but um so in that regard but so i i think in some ways it's similar to what what taylor is up to right but i think there's critical in that one way i sort of talked about with kavanaugh and, and i think it is sort of trying to say in that regard while we might think of ourselves as living in a disenchanted world, we probably never have lived in such a world. And maybe I'm hoping my work can help us sort of acknowledge that again and say, okay. So granted, the world is not properly disenchanted, but how do you position your material spirituality with respect to how our world is differently enchanted than it might have been in the medieval period Taylor is talking about? Yeah, I think that's, no, that's good. I think, I think one of the things... Uh, that we could talk about in this regard is the way in which uh, the Reformation, perhaps unintentionally, sort of severed spirituality from religiosity, right? In a way that is in some ways helpful, at least as a distinction, we need to sort of make remember that these aren't the same thing, right? And so I think trying to articulate this enchantment in non-religious language is 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 totally acceptable. Like, sure, that makes sense, right? Like that. If if I want to, if I go a little bit Doya Weirdian for a moment, right? Sort of making the distinction between the motivating impulse or the, 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 the dynamic ground motive and the pistic mode, right? Um, and I think there's a pistic element to consumerism that is a religious element, you could say, and how they articulate these things as well, right? But, but keeping those things distinct, right, helps us say, yeah, you, that you aren't using a certain kind of language doesn't mean you're not enchanting the world still. Right. And, and I think that's helpful in a sense. Right, I think that actually can do a good thing for us and help us realize just because I'm not traditionally religious doesn't mean I'm not you know, religious in doorway sense. doesn't mean I'm not spiritual. doesn't mean there's not still something driving my life that I that I need to pay attention to that that is, that that is nurturing me. Whether I need to nurture it somehow depends on how purposeful I want to be vis-a-vis -vis my own spirituality, right? But it is nurturing me, and it is shaping me. And if I want, I if I want some sort of 
say over my life and the things I should probably then pay attention to how that is that I'm being nurtured and how I want to articulate that. Right. So I don't know if that if that helps answer it, but yeah. yeah. When you were dealing with liturgy as a way to bring out the idea that all of life is religious, there was an implicit problem that Hegel identified. Namely, he says, when something is everything, it becomes nothing. It strikes me that something like that is at play in your friend from Boston College saying, if all life is religious, then what does that even mean? If the religious is everything, how can it be anything? How do you avoid that same phenomenon? Yeah. No, I think... Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that is a huge question for the Reformational tradition, right? And I think that's that's one of the things. And I don't know how helpful this will be, but my hope is the distinction between spirit as a motivating impulse and then the ways in which that impulse shows itself. Or, Or if you use the Deleuzean terms, between sort of a force and then the bodies upon which it acts, right? helps us, maybe helps us deal with this a little bit to say that there's something that's driving all of this, sure, but it, it it's doing a whole bunch of different things. And so we can still talk about, to say all of life is religious, isn't that, right? Uh, in this terminology, I would say all of life is spiritual mm-hmm. and, and not religious right, in that right, sense, right. right? And I think that's helpful to sort of keep that separate. But I think it's also important, and I sort of said it in this, like, we also have to be like, nurturing particular forms of spirituality then does become important and essential, right? And here's where I think a case can be made. Um, and again, I think this is a lot of what Jamie Smith is trying to do, right, is a case to be made is, and to nurture these deeper spiritualities, certain religious practices might be better than others, right? Religious in the sense of sort of pistic or, or traditionally religious, right? And, 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 maybe, and maybe we have to pay attention to those things as well, right? Which is helpful and gets us back to, because one of the critiques of the Reformational tradition, if God's everywhere, then why should I go to church, right? Why don't I just sleep in, right? And I think this, this helps answer that question, right? And it also, I think, helps answer while still honoring sort of, right, one, as you know, one of the early, one of the big bugaboos that the early Reformation has really sort of took umbrage with was what, what they call pietism, right? This sort of sense of spirituality and this place in the sky that's different from this world. And I understand where the critique comes from. But, and one of R. Walter's big critiques then of the Reformational tradition is it maybe threw the baby out with the bathwater and it came to piety, right? To, to piety. Like we can have piety without pietism, right? And I think this, again, helps do that to say there is still something to having a personal relationship with Jesus, right? That there is still something about having a, a cultivating a deep spiritual, the Holy Spirit in my heart working in me and connecting that and asking God to have that spirit clear out some of the other things that are in my life and clear out some of the ways that that spirit is being distorted in me and all these kinds of things, right? Um, And so I think it it sort of reopens the door to say, you know, doing personal devotions, that probably is actually a really good thing. Even, even, Even for reformational people, maybe, right? Like maybe we should also be doing this kind of thing, right? Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's helpful in, in that way. I mean, it still doesn't, I, I think so in that way, I think if you separate the spirituality from the religious, then everything being spiritual doesn't mean so religious is, religion is meaningless, right? Because now it, it does have a place to play as a particular way in which spirit gets expressed, a particular mode in which this happens and one we need to pay attention to. But part of trying to cultivate that is not just for its own sake, but for the sake of, right, I do devotions, not just so that me and Jesus are tight so I'll go to heaven someday, but because I really think doing that transforms how I do all these other things in my life, right? So I think it, I think 
it's a long way of saying I think it avoids that problem, but 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 maybe yeah, but maybe not entirely, right? No, I and you're right. I think it's a good critique, a good concern, though. Yeah, Gideon. So on your account, how does going to church help? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I so I think what I would want to say is, um, and this gets tricky insofar as as, as I want to keep a focus on God as sort of the actor, right? The subject of the action verbs, right? So it's not like I go to church to make sure that, that God's in my heart or something. Like, I, I don't know about that. But what I would say is part of the reason I need to go to church is to help cultivate in me a certain spirituality, right? Which is not to say God needs my invitation maybe to come into my heart. I'm, I'm sort of Calvinist enough to be comfortable with, with not saying that. Um, but I think it is to say, like, at least one of the things maybe that happens in church more than other places, at least theoretically, is ways that sort of helps me see how what I take to be God is maybe still distorted by other things, right? And so helps me see how things in my life are becoming God or becoming an idol in ways that that aren't. That doesn't sound all that material to me. Or it sounds too much like a mind-body dualism. Right. Okay, good. Um, a, the ways in which I come to discover this need not be only rationally articulated, right? So one of the ways is maybe in eating the, be- the body and drinking the blood, this, so this also can be a thing that rearticulates for me, gets me a connection to something that I realize is, is there's a depth there that that isn't in, in some of the other things I do, right? So it's not just articulated in words, or it's not just through the sermon that this is going to happen, right? It can certainly happen, I think, through um, even uh, through the Eucharist, but even through sort of the music and some of the other sort of traditional liturgical elements that happen can can cultivate in me a, a greater or a lesser openness to transcendental things, right? And I don't mean transcendent things as things outside the world, right? But they open me to encountering the material processes of singing and hearing music and encountering those in a different way, right? It changes my embodied reaction to these kinds of things, right? Which in turn then changes my embodied reaction to listening to music outside of church too. It opens me to experience Bach, but also Nirvana and Iggy Pop in different ways, right? And I think it opens the possibility of of interacting with all of those things differently, right? Um, in terms of the concrete how, like how that actually works, um, that's something I think, I, I mean, the precise mechanisms, I would need a lot. I, in fact, I don't even know if I, as a philosopher, would be the best one to answer some of those how questions, right? Some of those might be best answered by psychologists or, or things like that, right? Um, but in terms of the broader how question, I, I, I hope that helps, right? Because I think that's part of the articulation. And, and there's also something in being sort of encouraged and nurtured by the body of believers as well that is also part of this, right? By being with others. Uh, and again, not, and this is part of what's I think important, right? Nurtured in the body of believers doesn't mean being with others who think what I think, even about all religious matters, right? Like I, I think it's, it's genuinely possible to disagree about even... You know, what some people would call fundamental religious issues. Uh, My church right now is sort of going through the question of women in office and and what role that has and doesn't have, right? And I think part of what I'm articulating here, hopefully, is a way of sort of saying we can actually disagree about that as a theological issue, as a way of reading the Bible, and still be united in terms of serving the same spirit, right? That that's sort of coming between us. And sort of having nurturing that in a body, in a communion, I think helps us then 
be able to witness to that spirit and, and express and show that spirit in other parts of our life where maybe it, it not everyone is going to then share that same sort of spirit we have, right? So, yeah, thank you. How does this unfold or play out in interreligious dialogue or in an encounter with different types of reli- religiosity or spirituality? The way you presented it works very well in the North American context, but you can also go to societies where there's already at work a material spirituality where everything is dripping with meaning. You have groups of people that radically disagree on the way they see the meaning of God expressed through things, and they need to coexist. Yeah, good. Um, no, that's that's a really great question, and, and I've I've I try when I'm careful, and I'm not always careful. When I'm careful, I try to articulate that I think this is helpful primarily in a North American context. And, and especially for me in the context of North American Christianity, which is primarily where I work and what I'm familiar with, right? Um, to what extent it might be helpful in these other contexts, I honestly don't know, right? Like I, I'm not familiar enough. And, and, and it, 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 it might not be, right? I think part of, for me, part of, of, of living out this kind of material spirituality, this living engagement, is, is acknowledging that the ways in which we express God, right, including theologically, right, are, are, are expressive of the spirit that's in us. But also, uh, right, we express, it's not only what we express, it's, it's where we express it, right? And to express God here might look different than to express God somewhere else, right? It requires, to, to express the same thing requires different even different language and different words in certain places, right? Because because the issues we're reacting to aren't the same issues, right? And, and, and the, the, the cultural situation, as you point out, is not the same cultural situation, right? So in a culture in which we think stuff is just stuff, there we need to be reminded of the spiritual nature of, of, of stuff, right? And in cultures where that's not the problem, then maybe that's not what needs to be emphasized or needs to be discussed, right? I don't know if, I don't know if that answers your, your, your question or concern, but... I, uh, so I, I think you're right. It seems very plausible to me that this wouldn't be helpful in a lot of places. One of the things that stood out for me was the example of consumerism and Christianity. That is a negative example, but it could work the opposite way if you have religious traditions sharing the same space. The fact that consumerism and Christianity can coexist, even in a distorted way, might mean there's a space where Christianity can negotiate spaces to work with other traditions. That's that's good, and and one of the things you said that is important because like you're talking about sort of of the way in which it distorts, right? It might distort, it might be a Christianity in a distorted way, right? And I think that's important, and and I want to emphasize this because I know Lambert Zaidovar. I sort of I've talked with him about some of this stuff before, and in, in, in the Ground Motives blog actually, right? And one of the things he's posted in response is he's really uncomfortable with some of the spirituality talk because like right early on, what that fed in the Reformational tradition was a real sense of like we've got it right. And y'all are wrong, and there was a triumphalism that went with this and all this kind of stuff, right? Um, and I think part of what I want to say is we have to be really careful to, to acknowledge that insofar as we are living as humans in a fallen world, it will never be pure, right? The, the, the spirit in our hearts will never be pure, I don't think, right? It's not that God is impure. It's that, that there's a lot of other stuff going on, right? And I struggle back and forth with, does this mean the spirit shining through me is pure or just how I express it is pure? And I'm not quite sure. I, I, right now, I'm in a, because part of the way we pick up the spirit is, and I didn't talk about this as much, is also through the material practices. Like we, we pick up what God looks like from our interactions <laughs> with people in the world and the church and this kind of thing. And so that's going to be distorted. It's going to be distorted in various ways, right? And so we have to be careful to say what I'm expressing 
it might be to get back to Bob's concern, right? This doesn't mean, well, therefore all, exp- if they're all distorted, they're all equal. Well, I don't think that's true either, right? Like, I mean, I'm going to put a number on it, which I shouldn't do because it's totally unhelpful. But and now analogically, let's say, right, something that's like 50% spirit of God and 50% distortion, whatever, right? I mean, again, it's not helpful, but right, is, is better than something that's 10% and 90% distortion, but less good than something that's 90% pure and 10% distortion. And obviously it doesn't work that clearly, but as an analogy, right, to say like, you can be better or worse without having any of them having to be perfect, right? And that they aren't perfect, I hope leads, like, the, the, the distortion part is something I have to emphasize more because I want to avoid this sense that like, we've got this, I, I got this, because once it's, the, if it's the spirit of God that's flowing through me, then who are any of you to say no to what I'm doing, right? Like, because now I'm, I'm not me, I'm God talking, right? And I'm here to lay waste to all of y'all. And that's obviously, I want to avoid that, right? And so, um, yeah, anyway. I'm reading Zizek right now, and I think you might appreciate him. Zizek says dialectical materialism has missed the spiritual. He actually called Freud's libido spiritual, but the problem is that it's also the death drive. The religion that's closest to understanding it is Christianity, he says. Christians say you can't take anything in this world and say, that's the answer. And that's where I think the church is important, because it's about God, but also about us working with God together, because God is what's really driving the material anyway. Zizek also says Christianity can teach communism and materialism about the spirit. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I think, no, I think that's helpful. I think that's one of the ways sort of really practically that I, that I would hope something like this could make a difference in terms of churches, as you were pointing out, right? Um, in, in terms of, of, of preaching, not that I'm, I'm not one to tell people what to preach about, but what I would hope is that out of this comes, as you said, we need to remember that our hope is not in us and it's not in anything that we do. It's in God. And that part of what we have to do as Christians is to learn to see God at work. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's interesting. I, I really am doing my best to avoid having to read Zizek. How do you apply this kind of conversation to new forms of spirituality? Christians usually think you've got to go to church. There's a kind of necessary dimension of liturgy. But how do we have that conversation with the person who's spiritual but not religious? It seems like we would say if you're really serious about saying you're spiritual, you're probably also proto-religious. There's a sense in which, if you're spiritual, you also take yourself in relationship to something beyond you. And we learn about that in liturgies. So I guess I'm wondering how to have that conversation with that kind of person about spiritual communities. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So I I agree with you that, that this sort of has to play out, obviously, in some kind of practical actions, right? Um, I'm saying that up front because the answer I'm about to give doesn't suggest that. But... <laughs> I I do think that Um, because I think part of what, especially to the spiritual but not religious question, right? I think part of what I would say in that regard is I'm not sure that's the conversation we need to have with those people, at least not first, right? Like, and I think this comes back to the answer I was giving with Hector too, right? Like in terms of the the contextual nature of where we are, like I think as speaking as Christians, right? We, I think we have to acknowledge the way that the church has hurt a lot of people, like it's not their fault that they're not that they see the church and don't want to go right and i think that's where we have to be careful first obviously in how we you're right it's it's about the right relation between the religious part and the spiritual part and 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 there are and i i just i hate that i'm about to say this but i think it's true i think there are a lot of churches in north america that are really good services great music and great preaching and all this stuff and god doesn't show up once 
right? He might not even be there, right? Because it's so self, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a great show, but it's all about getting people to believe the right things and do the right things. And it's very, right, about what we are doing about this problem. And it's missing what Jim was pointing out, like, that's what God is doing, right? And I think in some sense, the same, in some sense, and I'm not committed to this, but the idealistic side of me wants to say, we have to trust that God will make people want to go to church, right? Like if they're supposed to be in church, God will help them to want to go there, right? Which is not, I, I think there's still something to, to duty in a certain sense. Like I don't always want to go to church, but I think if I'm honest, this, is, this was not always the case, but I think if I'm honest now, even when I don't want to go to church, I still go because there's a, a deeper part of me that does want to, right? Like there's something that still pushes me to want to go, right? Um, and, 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 and so that's why, and again, I'm not entirely comfortable with the, with the things I'm saying. I acknowledge that up front. Because um, I'm not sure. Like this is stuff I'm just thinking through. So I'm not sure how much I would want to say this. But I, I do think like we have, before we can have that conversation with people who are spiritual but not religious, I think we have to be able to answer Gideon's question better of like, why should you go to church in the first place, right? Uh, just because is not a good reason. Uh, to say thank you to God is not a good reason because there's lots of other ways we can say thank you, right? I mean, I think we have to be able to articulate what that is. And then we have to make sure that the church we want this person to go to is actually doing that, right? Um, so I'm sort of of the belief that if we if we fix the church, people will come back, right? The, the, the place to work in the sort of the, the, the issue of people who are spiritual but not religious, the place to work is not to convince them to go back to church, is to convince the church to listen to them and say, why are these people not coming? Oh, they've fallen away. Oh, blah, blah. And well, no, they still believe. I mean, I saw an interesting breakdown recently about how many people are spiritual but not religious. There's a significant portion. I can't remember the numbers, but it's a significant portion of those people who self-identify that way still say they believe in the existence of God as they, and, and most of the moral stuff. They, they still believe most of the message. They just don't want to go to church. And I think as the church, we have to listen to that. That's not to say everything, all their complaints are right or valid or something. And I certainly is not to say the way to lure them back in is like to use better, prettier music or something. Like that's not, right? The, the, the spiritual problem at the root of it, not a show problem. It's not we need a nicer show. That's not the problem, right? The problem is they don't want, they're spiritual. They don't want to go to church because they don't, their spirit's not being fed. They don't see the spirit when they go to church. And that is a problem, right? Um, so that's how I want to answer. The way you're talking is very Protestant, but it strikes me that a Catholic has a very different understanding. About half of us here are Catholic. The church is God's work. Somehow you might want to address that language, or maybe not. But if you wanted this to be something ecumenically vi- valuable as a theory, that might help. Right. And I think, no, I think, I mean, your, your, your point is a good one. And I think I just have to plead guilty because, well, well I mean, I... I I do think that one of the primary ways that God acts in the world is through his church, right? Is through his people, right? I'm just less convinced than maybe some of my Roman Catholic friends are that his church and the institutional church are coterminous things, yeah, that's right? Kind of the and, division. right? And, and, and that's where like, I, yeah, I, 
I'm just I'm I'm just I'm too Protestant, right? I no, I was. You're not too Protestant. You're just Protestant. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so am I. yeah, yeah. No, and, and that's where I said, like that's where I just plead guilty. I just think like that's where, and I would be happy to have that conversation, right? With and and I have in some places before, right? Because I do think it's important for the Protestants. I do think it's important to remember that the church is a unique way in which God works, right? And I think a lot of Paul's language of of God working in me and God working through me is, is stuff we have to recover a lot better in the Protestant church because we don't, we either think that means something like what I'm doing is automatically God's work, but that's not it, right? Or we just ignore it. I think we have to recover what that means in a richness. And I think there we can have a lot to learn from the Catholic tradition, um, both contemporary and sort of historical. Right? I think there's a lot there, but yeah, I'm just still uncomfortable with that. The, the, the people of God and the institutional church are one and the same thing. I, that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. for listening. Tune in to our next episode where we'll hear from Kate Hennessy, Dorothy Day's granddaughter. Be on the lookout for that episode soon, and in the meantime, head on over to iTunes and give us a review. You can also find us on social media. We are on Facebook as the Institute for Christian Studies and on Twitter at INSCHR, I-N-S-C-H-R. You can also send us an email with any thoughts, corrections, or comments at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. Music